It's go time. Welcome everyone to Quick Kicks. I'm Don Charbon. And joining me tonight, we have Mike Smith-Knudsen of the Turf District podcast is here with us tonight. What I'm hoping to do tonight is get into the whole idea of research and documentation of the Canadian Football League. That would be of great value to anyone that would like to embark on such a project. Mike, you've been known as Superfan Mike, partly because of your love of Edmonton football. But the other aspect to you is the fact that you are probably one of the greatest compilers of Edmonton football history, maybe in Western Canada, maybe in the world. What got you into this EE history? Thank you. Um, yeah, um, actually, the funny thing is the I went most of my life, you know, at that time, 40-some years without ever getting a nickname, uh, which is unusual when your name is Mike. And it was Andrew that started calling me super fan Mike uh, when I was first on his, on the show before I was part of the podcast. So yeah, it kind of ended up coming full circle. I've always sort of loved history. I was really lucky in school when I was very young, you know, junior high kind of thing of having people that taught history in school that made it alive, made it exciting, made it more than just dates and places and names, right? It was the story behind it. And it was less about getting that right on exams and more about getting the gist of it. So uh, it sort of cultivated me at a, in a young age. Um, and then going to the football games, um, I mean, I've probably told the story before, my parents split up when I was young. Uh, we moved to Edmondson. And my mom got engaged uh, to the man who was going to become my, I mean, technically stepfather, which he was just dad. And he was an American that had moved to Canada in the 60s. And he didn't know anything about hockey. He came from Iowa. There was no hockey in Iowa. But he knew football. And so to bond with his future son, he uh, introduced me to the 1974 Grey Cup. And then in 75, right around when they got married, he started taking me to games at Clark Stadium. And while the game was going on, because I didn't really know football at that age, I was six years old, um, he would sort of explain it and then he would talk about the history, uh, how he went to Drake College two years after the Johnny Bright incident, uh, which is a very famous story in football where Johnny Bright was targeted for being a black man playing against Oklahoma A&M University. Uh, they broke his jaw three times uh, during the game and the photos... Uh, that were taken by photographers, ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize uh, in 52. Uh, he came to Canada, and so my dad knew the name, of course, and would tell me about that and tell me about Jackie Parker and the guys that had already come and gone by that point. And it was that that sort of made me fall in love with the team and allowed me to really bond with it. So it became a, a him and me thing. So every time I would go to the games or look, I'd be like, well, who's that guy they put up on the, the wall of honor? Like, who's Oscar Kruger or who's, you know, I mean, I knew Don Getty as the premier. I didn't know him as the football player and that kind of thing. And he would tell me about it. So it was always just a way to get close to my dad. So, and it just stuck. And the love of history, the love of the team, it was a pretty natural fit. When, when did you start co collecting material? When, when did that all start to evolve? I think like most kids of a certain vintage or even kids now um collecting was just one of those things you you did right i mean i have a 10 year old and he loves getting 
um, the, the training cards that they still make for um, Upper Deck. Or they were handing out stuff at the game, which are specific player cards that are only available for kids in the Knothole Club. Um, and it, I was the same way. So I would collect things so like my programs. And this is long before the internet, of course. So if you wanted to know somebody's stats, you had to have the trading cards. You had to have the programs. Um, you know, who was number, you know, 37? Well, you had to have a program to know that. Um, so I just loved keeping those sort of things. And then, like... So many other people, I would uh, go off to college, and I came back and and found that my parents had had a garage sale, and it was gone. Um, and you know, it wasn't necessarily anything of, of great value at the time because you know I wasn't going out looking for it; it was just stuff I brought back from games and things. And then I moved to Victoria, and I to try and connect back with Edmondson and the football. I just started collecting games on VHS, and I would start getting the playing cards again and, and programs and things like that, and it just snowballed. So that was, you know, 25 years ago kind of thing. When you were recording VHS, that would be games on TSN, CBC, I think even at that time, maybe CTV? No, this was trading circles, actually. These were older games. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I would still record, because I, when I was a kid, like we had a, a VCR fairly early for the block, like around 1980, maybe even 79. Uh, you know, the old top loader VHS machines. Uh, my dad was always very big on getting the newest technology. He never had an 8-track. He got a cassette deck in the late 60s when it was brand new. And same with the VCR, right? We got those early. So I was able to start taping games because they were on when I was a kid. So I couldn't watch the games to the end. So I would tape them um, and then save them. I could watch them back and those all got lost. So I started taping games and I found a trading circle and I was able to trade up for some older games. And and that was it. I was trading with friends and just like with cards, got it, got it, need it. Same kind of thing. So this would be the importance of having connections then with, with a like mind. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is in the sort of late 90s. So the internet is, uh, the web itself is really starting to take off, especially message boards and things like that. And you could find someone that maybe it's like, oh, I happen to have a bunch of games too. Great, let's talk. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're trading with a guy out of Regina or a guy from Hamilton or whatever, right, that happen to have games. And especially, don't forget, this is the blackout era still. So some games are still blacked out locally, So, but someone in Hamilton can tape that game when you can't. That's very true. And I used to hate blackouts. 100%. I think they were probably the worst thing for a pro sports league because you basically have a captive audience that you say to them, no, you can't watch. Yeah, I mean, especially back in the day when it's like you want to huddle around a 20-inch TV versus being in a stadium. I mean, now when you've got a 70-inch TV, you can get at Costco for like 800 bucks, 700 bucks in 4K. Sure, maybe they've got a you know, better view from there, but back then, are you kidding me? No one had a great view in front of those little TVs. Well, I don't think back to the black and white days. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of VCRs then, but yeah, absolutely. Mid-90s, you got this circle. What, what other things were you learning at the time? Because I, I imagine your, your interest is growing in terms of history. What, what else is teaching you where you need to be, what you need to do? Well, again, being in a different city, especially a non-CFL city like Victoria... Not even really a big sports city, to be perfectly honest. It's it's 350,000 in Greater Victoria, but they've had a lot of teams come and go in all sports. 
it's just you needed to sort of find your community, to find your people, right? So I would um, go on those message boards and be like, I'm in Victoria, and that's how I met uh, several friends that were uh, fans of the BC Lions or the Ottawa, at the time, Renegades, you know, had just sort of come back that were, you know, oh my, these are Rough Rider fans, Black Rider fans that are all of a sudden getting a team again in, in the Renegades and how exciting that was. And then other Edmonton fans that had transplanted there as well. And that was really key because they would also have friends, right? So you get this network going um, that will either help you with you know, whether it's the collectibles or the games, but also with the history, because they saw games differently than you did. So you might go to a game or watch a game on TV, and they were noticing things you weren't, whether it's a live game or an old game, right? And and that really helped grow my interest in the game, my knowledge of the game, both from a football perspective and from a historical perspective. So when do you switch gears? Because there obviously is a point at which this becomes more than just an interest. It becomes a passion for you. Yeah, I think when you start finding ways that you can find this information that previously there's just no way to track it down. Like I've been really interested in the pre-war era of Canadian football in the West, especially, because it's not really documented much anywhere. They'll, they'll talk about, you know, Edmonton was the first Western team in the Grey Cup in 1921, and then they changed their name to the Elks in 22, and then it disappears until 1949, they become the Green and Gold and join the league. But nothing really gets talked about before that. And there really wasn't any way for me to learn about that kind of era other than books that might have been published. So uh, I used to do a lot of interlibrary loans. Uh, so I would get things sent to me. And then I started doing family tree research, genealogy, uh, right around 2001. My grandmother died and she was the matriarch of the family and she had the family tree. It was oral tradition. She could talk six generations, seven generations back from memory. And so I'm like, who are all these people? I always hear this. This is a cousin. This is, you know, your grandmother, your great grandmother, but it was, you know, your fourth great grandmother, whatever. And so I discovered researching that on the internet. And from there, I started realizing, well, maybe I could start researching the football stuff on the internet. And in the early days, in that sort of Wild West of internet research, there's a lot of wrong information out there. So someone hears a story and passes it down, and this becomes truth. Uh, so just like in genealogy, you need to get sources and sort of make that, uh, you know, a little more solid of a connection. And since then, I've always been very adamant about trying to correct these things that are out there that are wrong. You know, where did the team get the name from? Or when did the team start playing football in Edmonton and things like that? And you'll see all these random dates and it's like, okay. There's got to be a way to find this stuff out, and that's been sort of a mission. What you're looking for is original documentation, and a lot of times even newspaper accounts of what happened at that time. Sometimes it's hard to get original documentation, so it's you have to look for information that's of the period. So newspapers are a great way to go. And that's probably one of my greatest resources is getting a newspapers.com subscription or um uh, newspaperarchives.com were the two the big ones. Um, Newspaper Archives was first because it had the Winnipeg Free Press. And being one of the bigger Western clubs 
in the early, early days, they reported it a lot. And then newspapers.com started adding the Edmonton Journal and the Regina Leader Post, uh, the Calgary Herald, and all of a sudden now you're getting all these teams that are playing each other. It's still a challenge, um, but sometimes that's what makes it fun, right? And this begs of the question of cross-referencing and how important it is when you're doing this type of research. Oh, it's critical. Like, you need to be able to say, okay, well, I've got a source. Newspapers back then were sometimes a little loose with the facts and more about telling a good story. You know, if it sounds like, and this is going into the 50s, 60s, even 70s, where the real truth maybe isn't as interesting as coloring it up a little bit and and being a good uh, raconteur, you know, if you will, of, of telling that great story so people enjoy it and come back to more than just saying, no, it was just because of this. I still think the truth needs to be documented somewhere. Well, and another way to do it too is, especially when looking at old photographs, if you know, for instance, that in the 1960s, home teams wore white in even years, and in odd years, home teams wore dark. Yep. That kind of now starts to help you narrow in on when such an event may have happened. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it cuts it in half, right? I mean, if you're seeing, okay, this is definitely at Taylor Field, and the riders are wearing white, well, now, you know, it's, it's really narrowed down to one of five years. At that point, right? It's not going to be the 50s. It's not going to be the 70s on. It's those even numbers in the 60s. During the 60s as well, teams were starting to introduce helmet logos. Yep. There's always that demarcation line. For sure. And changing of colors, changing of uniforms. BC changed uniforms quite often. So you can start saying, okay, well, now I've got a three-year range kind of thing. You know, early 70s, I started putting names in the back. Of, of jerseys, you know, 70, 71, depending on the All-Star game in 70, I think was the first time for some teams. They started wearing those things in 71, 72 for Saskatchewan was the last team to put num- uh, names in the back. All of a sudden now you're getting these sort of connections. Okay, well, I'm watching a game. Saskatchewan doesn't have names in the back, but BC does. It's a 71 game, right? That kind of thing. Any way that you can make that connection across two platforms that narrows in the focus and narrows in the authenticity. Or maybe in the numbers, right? So that's why I collected programs. So I could say, who played in this game? I found a photo on eBay, and I was uh, hoping that nobody else would realize the significance of the photo so it would stay cheap. And I got it, and I won it, and it's just, you see this big guy, looks like he's got the ball, uh, and he's running, and he's wearing number 52, and immediately I knew that was Dick Suderman who played a single game for Edmondson and the next day died of a brain aneurysm. So as far as I know, that is the only photo of him in an Edmonton jersey. Oh, that is amazing and sad. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it didn't exist, right? I've seen a green Dick Suderman jersey uh, that the Hall of Fame trots out at Grey Cup, and it's like he only played an away game in 72. He never wore it. So they made it for him. But this is a picture of him in BC in a white jersey. And it's like, wow, that's... That should be in a museum, right? When you're doing your archiving, you're you're gathering all kinds of media, paper, photographs, films, game-worn material. Yep, absolutely. I tried at some point to just sort of get everything. And then I realized that, that was not only going to be impossible, it's going to be really expensive. And it's going to be the logistics of trying to store and display and protect it 
was going to be almost impossible. So I started, okay, I should get, at least get you know, five or six things that that's my main focus. And then everything else is sort of on top of that. So if I do get it, great. And if I don't, whatever. And I happened to be hanging out with a guy in BC who has literally written the book on the BC Lions. In fact, he's written six books on the BC Lions named John Wortman. And John was the guy that sort of got me realizing you need stuff that's informational. You need to be able to take something and say, okay, this is going to give me information about a person or a time or a team or an era. So programs was always something I was big on because it tells you who was playing in that game. And sometimes they adjusted, but a lot of people will scratch it out and write in names. I love those way better than the pristine ones. Um, Same with photos. So I started trying to get original photos whenever possible, or at least scans of photos. Trading cards, same kind of thing, right? It has that photo, and you're seeing the, you know, 1958, 59 tops, and you're like, who is this guy? And you realize he never played with the team. But still, he was a member of the club at one point, and they thought he was important enough to make a card for him, even if he never did it ultimately end up playing, things like that. Um, team signed photos. I have uh, five team signed photos from the 1950s, so half of the years of that. Team signed footballs, again, who was there at that time? And sometimes you've got guys that run the, the five-day trial, and those are some of the most amazing footballs because you can narrow it down to a week when that football was signed, right? And, oh, this guy was still here. He wasn't with the team, but he was still around kind of thing. So anything like that is going to give you information. That, to me, is far more interesting than uh, a trinket from a game, even though I you know, still love those two. <laughs> you, you mentioned player cards, and I think, wasn't it in the early 1960s that somebody got creative with coloring and suddenly Edmonton was wearing brown, Calgary green, and Saskatchewan red. Yeah, so that was tops. And they started in 58, and they went from 58 to 65. And, you know, they were consistent. They did it every year in that seven-year span or eight-year span. I have no idea why. Uh, I know Someone had uh, tried to tell me that the uh, these are practice jerseys. That's what they were wearing. I was like, Edmonton never wore a brown practice jersey. And you can bet Saskatchewan didn't wear red. Unless maybe you're the scout team, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, we're playing Calgary, so you're throwing the red jersey today. No, these were just, they had black and white photos. And I have some originals that these were taken from. Uh, these were just black and white photos. They were coloring them using very rudimentary methods compared to what we can do now. And somehow they thought that Edmonton wore brown. Maybe they had a, a color faded color photo and the greenish had turned that olive green and all of a sudden maybe it's a little more brown. And I don't know how they must have just literally had Calgary red, white, Saskatchewan, green, white, and somebody flipped it. That's the only thing I can think of. Which impacts, of course, research because you people who buy those cards say, well, wait a minute, I've got a card. Here's Edmonton Brown. This proves that they wore brown that season. Oh, oh, for sure. Or here's a picture of Jackie Parker wearing 97. Never wore it in a game. But he wore it because he came to the team. They're like, we need a photo op. Throw on this jersey. That I never knew. Yeah, there's your photo op, right? So all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Jackie wore 97. No, he never did. Just for a photo. Even in uh, game day programs, like sometimes the photos inside would be not from that season, maybe not even from the season before. Sure. Might be from two seasons ago. Yeah. Oh, there's a famous series of posters that I think Tex Coulter was the illustrator for. Uh, They came out in 1970. 70, but the photos, you look at the Montreal and they're wearing the old uniforms. They switched to green in 70, but they're still wearing those red and white photos in there. So everyone thinks they came in the 70s. I just had old photos to work with. That's it. It's just, what do you got to work with? So 
And same with logos, right? People would, oh, well, it's got to be this because this logo. Well, they still use those logos for years after because they had lots of leftover stuff. So, you know, it's still going to be used, still around. You mentioned about storage just a little bit. Let's get that a little bit deeper because this is really important when it comes to record keeping. 100%. Light, humidity. Yep. Um, for me, I like to, I mean, I have everything brought in the basement. My basement is, I mean, I don't want to say it's a, a museum, but it is set up like that. It's very much based on display. So everything has to be LED, has to be not giving off much heat, if at all. Uh, I run a dehumidifier to make sure everything stays avoiding that sort of water. Uh, and I have all my blinds drawn at all times. So we have no sunlight coming into the room. We have just LED light and it's uh, low wattage. LED as well. Uh, you keep everything dry. Every one of my photos is stored in museum grade, like a, almost like a mylar protection. Uh, everything's got cardboard backing, which is again, acid-free paper, the whole thing, because I mean, I don't think of myself as owning this stuff as just a steward of it for a while and cataloging it and showing what is out there. Uh, and that's why I created my account, my, the Edmonton football history account. Um, and did the what we call hoard and tell on our podcast, just so we can show all these things that are out there. And, you know, after me, I want these things to still be around for other people to enjoy. That is awesome. You you mentioned photographs and acid-free. I can relate a uh, personal story. We got some photos that my parents had taken when we were little kids, and they were just in regular photo albums. Well, they were welded inside of there. Even though they weren't glued, they were welded inside there. Yeah, I've got a few photos like that as well. I mean, I think anyone that sort of grew up in the 70s, they have that sort of magnetic paper, whatever they called it back in the day. Uh, and yeah, it's just completely stuck. Like you cannot get it out. You start peeling it off and, and the photo comes with it. Uh, I even have some Edmonton football stuff. Uh, they had the uh, team issued photos in the 60s. And I'm like, found one. It was, it was behind glass and I took it apart and it's, it's stuck to that glass. Not ever coming off. So, you know, that's the way it's going to be. Storage is a massive issue when it comes to any of this. Yeah. Uh, and storage and sort of cataloging, especially if it's unusual. If it's a trading card, a trading card's a trading card. That's documented everywhere. But I was lucky enough to come into a set of negatives that was originally owned by the Edmonton Sun. And I have every football negative they had from 78 and 79. But most importantly, the dates are written on the outside of each envelope that contains the negatives. I've been scanning them in and then labeling what dates they're from so that down the road, it's like, I need a photo of Don Warrington. I'm like, here's Don Warrington from September of 1979. You know, and you know when this photo was taken and sometimes to the day, right? Uh, here's the training camp of 1978 kind of thing. That's, and if, you know, for an Edmonton football fan, those are pretty important dates. Well, you touch on two things. First is, of course, obviously you've got the photos that you've scanned, but the second thing is, yeah, how do you organize that information once you've scanned it? Because it's great to scan it, but if you don't remember what you did with the file or you don't know how you named it, yeah, and that's why I try to get as much information into the name as possible. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough I work in the IT field, understanding things like, um, you know, file structures and databases and things like that makes life a lot easier. So whenever I have a photo, I will try to name it date first, uh, year, month, day, so that way it sorts in chronological order. 
who the subject is, what the location is, and who the photographer was. Because that's another thing that's really important and gets lost. You know, these photos were taken by Bob Peterson. And people are like, who's Bob Peterson? You know, or, or you know, who's Terry Elniski? Or, and these are guys that photographed the team for many years. And a lot of people that are listening to the show may have heard of Scott Grant because he's one of the more famous guys out there. He photographed uh, not only the Ottawa uh, Rough Riders and Renegades and uh, Red Blacks. His dad actually photographed the Rough Riders back into the late 50s through the early 70s. Um, And his photos are available for purchase from his website. And there are, for each team, there are between 1,500 and 2,000 individual photos going back that far, you know? Who offers that kind of thing? And they're cheap. They are, and they're a great resource. I'm I'm into helmet history. That's my baby. And Scott Grant, I bought a lot of photos from him because there are so many photos that I can finally put a date stamp to. That's the year that Toronto wore that logo. Absolutely. They always, and it's not just the logos, right? It's sometimes this is when they started putting on this kind of face mask, or um, you know, this is what it, the the logo on, the, on like the CFL logo on the back, or numbers on the back of the helmet. Oh my goodness, there's a number there on the front sometimes for some of them, right? Or the sides, and it's like, okay, well, I know now that in 1963 they started wearing numbers on the side of their helmets. Well, that makes life so much easier. If you scan something. How long do you wait before you actually put it in its place, i.e. you've coded it, now you've got to file it somewhere? Do you, do you do it immediately? Do you think, oh, I can wait a day, I've got so many to do? How do you go through that process? I do it immediately. I just know myself well enough that if I start scanning stuff in and do an entire you know, folder's worth, then by the time I get to that last one, Maybe all of a sudden, you know, uh, I'm spending time with my son or, or, or my partner, uh, or we're going out for dinner, or it's bedtime. So, And then by the time you get back to it, you've forgotten everything. So I figure while something's scanning, because I like to scan it in a high, fairly high resolution, depending on the quality and the subject, could be anywhere from 300 to 600 DPI, even 1200. Um, I'm Scanning it in, it can take up to a minute. That gives me plenty of time to put in the information I had for the other one. But I also like to crop things and make sure they look good so it doesn't have too much stuff on the outside or maybe even do a little correcting. Um, You know, there's a little bit of a blemish on the photo, so I'll do a little correcting on that sort of thing. These aren't supposed to be a historical reference. It has to be exactly as it was. Um, I want it to be exactly what it would have looked like at the time. And what file formats do you use? Do you use RAW, JPEG, TIFF? I usually use TIFF for some of the higher-end scans, um, and JPEG I will use for stuff where I'm posting. TIFF tends to use, it's uncompressed, so it uses a lot more space than your compressed JPEGs. And when I'm doing JPEGs, I usually do, um, I use Photoshop, and you can save it from a number between 1 and 12 for quality. I try to save everything in 12 for photos. Uh, And then for newspapers, I'll just do, you know, 7 or 8. If I'm just doing scanning from newspapers.com, because I scan every article I can find and save it again, same kind of format, date, newspaper, page, etc. There's a frustration, I know, with CFL itself and the teams that they were pretty poor record keepers. They felt that once the season was over, eh, nobody would be interested, never thinking a guy like you would show up and into the bin and that was it. 
Yeah, ironically, uh, we did have uh, President Victor Cuey uh, of the Elks on our podcast just a couple of days ago, um, and I did my usual routine on the Horde and Tell, and I was just kind of going through some stuff, and then I talked a little about older teams and stuff like that, and he sort of found that interesting that I would have that sort of, you know, not I don't want to say knowledge, but that sort of passion for it and that, that information at sort of the tip of my fingers. I sort of explained that that's my idea of fun. At lunchtime, I'll go pull up a newspaper from 1913 and looking at uh, maybe not even the Regina Leader Post. Maybe I'm looking at the you know Saskatoon papers or other papers, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, whatever. They didn't have a team but still reported on it. And all of a sudden finding out, oh, in 1912, there were a Regina Rough Riders lacrosse team. And then by 1915, or 19, sorry, 1913, the rugby football club was starting to be called the Rough Riders. It wasn't official. People always say, oh, 1925 or 26, Regina became the Rough Riders. They've been calling them that self that since before the war. Well, that was something that happened with a lot of teams in that time. In fact, even 100%. to Winnipeg up and through the 30s, what what was their name prior to the Blue Bombers? You can you can pick a lot. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, the Victorias, the Winnipegs, the Pegs. Yeah, absolutely. And of course... That's part of the lore of the history, right? That's what you want to yeah. capture. That's what you want to tell the proper story, not something that you've made up and thought, well, this will sound interesting, but it's something that's authenticated. Going back to, to meeting up with Victor, he thought it was interesting enough. He said, have you ever seen our team archives? And I said, uh, no, I was invited to. Uh, a previous vice president who we've had on the show, who's now working for one of the radio stations, had invited me in 2011. I was still living in Victoria. Uh, I used to help the team out um Whenever someone had passed away, I'd be like, they died, here's when they played, here's photos I have of them, um, with all the details and everything else, and i just send it off, and they could just take it, format it how they want to like. I'm not a graphic designer, but they could do all that work, then post it, and it was, they thought it was great. So um, Dave Jameson, who's vice president, contacted me and said, you know, we've got these dusty old boxes, how about we have you come out, go through them all, and, you know, tell us what we've got, who these are. And I thought it was great. And then uh, five days later, they traded Ricky Ray to Toronto. And uh, Dave was busy. You know, it sort of fell apart. And then he left the team right after that. And so I never got my chance. And then I was offered again. So this is the third time's the charm. And and I think it's actually going to stick this time. So I'm looking forward to going through those dusty old boxes finally and seeing what they have kept. That would be awesome. I, I know archives are massive for so many reasons. and I think, I mean, I've had locker room tours and they'll be like, here's a picture of, of the team from years ago. And they have no idea who it is. They don't know what it is. They don't know when it is. And I and they'll, you know, I, I remember talking to Dwayne Mandrusiak was the equipment manager and he was doing the tour. And he said, uh, it's this huge photo. It's got to be 18 inches by 14 inches. Like it's a big photo or maybe even, you know, two feet. Uh, it's a team photo. And they have no idea who it is. He's like, I just liked it because one of the guys had a little Hitler mustache. Well, that's the 1920. That's literally the the first time we were called the Elks. It's 1922. The guy with the Hitler mustache is is Jack McAllister. He was the quarterback. And you could and they'd be like, How do you know that stuff? It's like because that's what I do for fun. Is I take old photos and try to figure out who these guys are. 
It's like a almost like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. You're sleuthing away. Hundred <laughs> percent. I go to extremes. Like I found a photo. They were figured it was in the late teens, early twenties. And I figured out not only when it was, I could tell you the week it was taken, and there was no names on it, but I was able to go track it down because I would go to Ancestry.com, and I would find those names, find someone who had pictures, and be like, yep, that's this guy. And so I could identify every single person in the photo by doing stuff like that. Do you think the CFL really appreciates the efforts of you and, say, Chris Creamer and other guys that are out there that are trying to document the history of this league? It's not just a matter of, again, just like when I was in in junior high, it's not about necessarily dates and names and things like that. Um, You have to make it interesting. And so if you can say, this person did that, but later on, outside of football, they did this. You know, we had a guy on our team in 1938 and 39. He was the backup center. Here's a picture of him. Well, that's Stu Hart who then later got into wrestling, and his son is Brett the Hitman Hart and Owen Hart. And all of a sudden now, to these people, it becomes, well, this is interesting to me now. It's not just the backup center in the 30s for the Edmonton Esks. It's actually someone I, I know of. I actually know this kind of name. And that's the kind of thing I think they find very interesting. That sort of thing, nobody knows. So I'm actually doing some of that for the Elks right now, is little bits of trivia, a sort of a did you know, and they'll be releasing that throughout this year. That's awesome. Well done, you. Yeah, it's kind of fun. But it, but you do bring up a good point because history is about the people, right? It's yeah. It's ultimately the story that goes with the photo, the story that goes with the stat. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, dates and numbers are, are for great for accountants. But I mean, really, most people are like, oh, okay. If you ask somebody when was this happened two hundred years ago, they don't really care if it was nine you know, 1814 or 1815. It doesn't make a difference to them. But if you can say, you know, this happened at the same time this happened, then it gives a little bit of context. And it starts going, oh, okay, that's interesting. And especially if you can relate it to them, you can say, you know, your great-great-grandparents would have been doing this. You know, they were farmers in the area and there was a big, you know, famine or whatever it happened to be. And a lot of people died. They still made it through. Now it's interesting to them because they can get sucked into the story. So, you know, I can give them the information. What's what they do with it that makes it so cool. Someone was starting out. They're just graduated high school and they're really interested in Canadian football. What advice would you give them if they wanted to start documenting some aspect of it? I would say a couple of things. Find your niche. Find something that's going to be like you with your helmets, right? I don't think anyone is... uh, People have talked about the uniforms before, but no one's really specifically focused on the helmets and no one to the detail that you've been doing. Like, they'll be like, okay, well, Edmonton wore gold helmets and then they on the sort of the dark yellow the modern gold helmets and those came out in 66 they also had a single green stripe in 66 and in 67 they added the two white stripes to it they had the gray face mask but then later on and then when did they add the numbers well they had the numbers back in 64 etc etc like that's the kind of thing that makes it so much easier to be like okay well we have this photo who is it well it's a guy wearing number 12 he's got an edmondson helmet it's shiny gold number on the back, but it has the logo on the side. Well, it's got to be 65. It's the only year they did that. That's Bill Riddell. Now, all of a sudden, you can put it in your file and say, you know, let's say that one day Bill Riddell dies. You can be like, I got a photo of Bill Riddell because I've identified it, and now we can have a story, and there's a photo to go with it. Because, you know, talk to any kid who's under the age of 12 years old, any story's better when there's pictures with it. Very true. One of my favorite places now is the Helmet History Project. Yeah, 
That was, that was fun. Uh, I actually talked to the guy that started that, and uh, he had got some of the Edmondson helmets on there. Um, and so he and I just started talking. We met on Twitter, and um, I started saying, yeah, you know, there's, it's really good. I like what you've done, but there's a lot of extra stuff in there. So he's like, oh, yeah, how do you know all this stuff? So I started going through all the photos, and I sent it. He's like, do you have this stuff? So, yeah, I just sent him a bunch of stuff, and he gave me a thanks on the page and everything else, which was great. And I said, I mean, I don't have it all. I just know that there's going to be some games where you're like, they're not wearing a logo in this helmet. But even though they had logos, well, that's because it's a preseason game, and some players had them, some didn't. And they, they started wearing a, a, a gold stripe on the green helmet in, in 1953 because they wore green and white uniforms. You know what I mean? Like, these are the kind of things that your average fan isn't going to know. But if you can document it all in this thing and see those photos, it's, it just sort of comes alive. I just love the enthusiasm you have for this because it really energizes me to think, well, okay, I've still got a long way to go in terms of my helmet project, but there's just a couple of years in the mid-60s that I'm still mixed up on, especially Ottawa, and because they, at one point, they had a double RR on their helmet, and then I don't know if mid-season they changed it to the big R. I'm not totally sure. That's why I love my newspapers.com subscription, because I can go to Ottawa newspapers and the away team papers, especially if they're playing games in Ottawa. So if it's Winnipeg in Ottawa, go to the Winnipeg paper, and because they're going to have the photos, right? Because they weren't able to go to the game. And same thing, if you're in Ottawa, go to when they, the away games, get those newspapers, and then you'll be able to see them. And sometimes, you know what, they don't have a good shot, you can't see the helmet, but There'll be that one time in a different paper. There it is. And now you've got your answer. Where do people find and follow you? Best place is Twitter. Uh, I'm most active there. I mean, I'm on other social medias, but that's sort of my bread and butter. Um, you can follow me there at 56parkies. That's actually a, a trading card reference. That was the first major trading card was the 1956 Parkhurst or the 56 Parkies. Um uh, that's probably the best place to interact with me. And then I'm I'm trying to get more into the, the football history Twitter account, which is uh, the Edmonton football history, which is E-D-M-H-I-S-T-O-R-E-E. Awesome. Thanks so much for giving us a little guided tour of uh, archiving the Canadian Football League. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.